Hey, everybody. This is Chris Joseph with the Life is a Ride podcast. I am the author of Life is a Ride, My Unconventional Journey of Cancer Recovery. I am really, really happy to be talking today with Jim Abrams, who is um, best known as a writer and director, along with his friends Jerry Zucker and David Zucker of the movies Airplane, Kentucky Fried Movie, Naked Gun, Top Secret, and the TV show Police Squad, uh, also one of my favorites, by the way. A um, bunch of other movies that Jim made over his career. Jim and David and Jerry are also the co-author of the new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane. Um, so, Jim, we'll touch a little bit on your career and the book towards the end of this interview. Um, but what you wrote at the end of the book is what caught my eye and made me want to talk to you. Um, you wrote about the health challenges 30 years ago with your son, Charlie. And I think the exact words you wrote in the book were everything changed when your son was one year old, one year old, and he had a seizure. Can you pick up the story from there? Yeah. Um, what I was referring to was in the book was that I'd spent really the first 48 or nine years of my life trying to find things to laugh about. And that's how that was pretty much my career. But then uh, our one-year-old son, Charlie, had his first seizure. And he went on to have hundreds, probably thousands more. And we were unable back then to, to control them. And what I was referring to in the book is there is absolutely nothing funny about being the parent of a kid with uncontrolled seizures N nothing and um basically what happened with charlie is he's when he started around his first birthday to to have seizures they kept getting worse and worse and more frequent and more frequent and different varieties you know uh kind of clonic where he would kind of uh, freeze and then jiggle and sometimes He'd do these drop seizures where he'd just fall to the ground suddenly as though he was a lamp and you just unplugged him and bang, he'd go down and he couldn't um can he couldn't brace his fall or anything like that. And it's it's a horrific thing to go through. So we started going to a bunch of neurologists to try to get help. And we wound up going to the heads of pediatric neurology at UCLA at uh, Boston Children's Hospital, Seattle Children's Hospital, um, here in Los Angeles at Children's Hospital and a few others. And they were all very much in agreement about what <clears throat> we should do with Charlie. He, the, there were drugs and there was brain surgery and then we were out of luck. And so we tried all the drugs that were available. And then Charlie at the age of just, like 14 or 15 months had a brain surgery and uh, that didn't help. And so his prognosis was um, continued seizures and progressive retardation. And that was it. And sort of as a way to um, not so much to find a cure because he'd had seizures in the arms of all these renowned pediatric neurologist, but sort of as a way to figure out how Charlie and his brother and sister and Nancy and I 
we're going to make it through life with a kid that sick. Or, um, how what do you how do you do that? How do do they have to go into institution or how do you keep them? At, oh, you know what do you do? And when I got to the medical library at UCLA, this is pre-internet days, so you couldn't look stuff up. So I went to the UCLA Medical Library, and they're hiding in plain sight. Even for a guy, I mean, the last thing I am in the world is a medical researcher. Oh, you became one, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, I came across this diet called the ketogenic diet that had been uh, developed in 1921 at the Mayo Clinic and for decades was a primary uh, uh, therapy for kids with difficult to control seizures. And, all, and there were lots of references in the medical literature and they were very much uh, the same as in terms of outcomes. They said that for kids who with seizures as bad as Charlie, who they put on the ketogenic diet, about a third have their seizures go away, about a third are significantly proved, fewer seizures, perhaps less drugs, and for a third it didn't work. And so um, we went to our doctor at UCLA, Charlie's doctor at UCLA, and said, hey, how about this diet thing? <laughs> and he said, in fact, what he said, because when we went at the same time, Nancy had heard about a um, an herbalist who worked out of a strip mall in Houston, Texas. And this herbalist supposedly had um, some herbs that we could give Charlie that would cure his seizures. So we went to Charlie's pediatric neurologist who ran pediatric neurology at UCLA and we said, look, we've heard about this diet thing called the ketogenic diet. And we've heard about this herbalist who runs, uh, works out of a strip mall in Houston. And we, we, we want to try one, what should we do? And he said, his pediatric neurologist said, flip a coin, I don't believe either will work. Mm. And so we did for the last time took his advice. We did flip a coin and it came up uh, herbalist in Houston, Texas. So we got on a plane with Charlie and took him to the herbalist. And the herbalist was a nice guy and he did work out of a strip mall. And he gave us some herbs and we gave them to Charlie, but that didn't work. So finally, I called the uh, a doctor at, at um, Johns Hopkins who had written the most recent paper in the medical literature uh, about the ketogenic diet, a guy named John Freeman. And um, he had written a paper in 1992, just a year before Charlie got sick, that said that they had tried the ketogenic diet on uh, 58 consecutive kids who were as sick as Charlie, and 29% had their seizures go away. So I called that Dr. John Freeman and he said, send Charlie's medical records. And I did. And he said, why don't you guys bring Charlie out here and we'll start the ketogenic diet, see if we can help his epilepsy. So we did. And when we flew to Johns Hopkins, Charlie was averaging about a dozen seizures a day. 
He was almost two years old and he was on four anti-epileptic medications. We started the ketogenic diet and within two days, his seizures disappeared. And within a month, he was off all his medications. I want to let that sit in. That's incredible. Yes. I mean, that yeah. is incredible. Yeah. To, to, to this day, as I tell that story, I get uh, chills and tear up a little bit. I'm sure. I'm sure. If you don't mind me asking, what did the original doctor say? Did you ever tell him that yes. this worked? And what did he say? He said, well, it's kind of interesting. He's there's if, on our website, and I could send you a link to this too, um, as sort of an upshot of what happened to us. Uh, we started the Charlie Foundation. And the first thing I did was film, make a video about the ketogenic diet. And long story short, one of the guys who worked on th that film worked for Dateline NBC. And Dateline NBC in 1994 did a segment about Charlie and and him his experience with the ketogenic diet. And they interviewed Dr. Shields, who was that doctor at UCLA. And you can see, I mean, I, I can send you a link, what Dr. Shields, what the Dateline interviewer said was, why did you try to talk to Abrams out of doing the the diet? And Shields said, well, there were still other drugs we hadn't tried. And then the interviewer says, so do you think this is uh, the the drug industry has a big influence? And Dr. Shields says on camera, on the Dateline thing, yeah, if there had been a drug company that had been pushing the ketogenic diet, um, that would have made a, a huge difference. And I, I'm not distorting anything. If you want, I, as I say, I'll send you the link. Yeah, so, no, I believe you. I've seen it in my own experience. Where yeah, so there you go. I mean, what we've learned is there are um, influences in our healthcare system that don't prioritize good health. So I want to ask you about that in a second. Um, some of the listeners to this podcast may not know what the ketogenic diet is. Um, if you could just give a brief 30 seconds about that. Sure. The ketogenic diet is a high fat, no sugar, very low carbohydrate um, diet that sort of um, mimics the effects of fasting. I mean, it was developed in the at the Mayo Clinic to literally, because they knew that starvation helped people with bad seizures, but you can't starve indefinitely. So they developed this diet that sort of mimics the effects of fasting. When you fast, you burn your own fat until you run out of fat. So it's a high fat, low, no sugar, low carbohydrate, a low process carbohydrate and with just enough protein to uh, manage a diet um, that is now being used not just for epilepsy, but for a bunch of other neurological disorders. And for cancer. Yeah. And for can yes, of course. And for cancer also. And that's one of the 
really thrilling developments of what's gone on over the last uh, 20, 30 years and equally depressing that it it's taken the last 20 or 30 years for it to regain its status. The, the dirty little secret, or maybe it's not so much of a secret anymore, is that sugar and carbs are really what's feeding a lot of the chronic illness that we have in this country. Yeah, our unfortunately, our diet was, you remember the... Uh, the diet, food pyramid, yeah. The food pyramid thing? Well, that was all based on flawed science and sort of championed if you really want to have a fun experience you know, look up Ansel Keys, and, and he was this Harvard guy from from the 50s who developed the, the food pyramid that everybody bought into, including our government. And if that's when obes obesity uh, went on the rise. Yeah, and, and we know, I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, but we know obesity is, is, the horrible linkages between chronic illness and, and obesity. It's really, it's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. The, the word that they use is comorbidity. Comorbidity. Yeah. And yeah. I keep thinking, you know, gosh, guys, it's bad enough to have two things like uh, high blood pressure or obesity and any number of uh, other diseases, but can't you come up with a better term than comorbidity <laughs> you say something else that goes along instead of comorbid i don't know yeah they, they don't want it to sound bad um so i want to talk about your foundation yes but but I, I i you know let's i also um want to make sure our listeners know your son who must be close to 30 or 31 years old now charlie's now 31 i'm glad you asked he um as our experience was, he was uh, started when he was just part of two, and he was actually on the diet for a total of five years because the lore of the diet back then and still today is that if you're on the ketogenic diet with uh, epilepsy and your seizures go away for a couple of years, you can wean off the diet and you'll be fine. But that wasn't our experience when we tried to wean Charlie off the ketogenic diet after two years of being seizure and drug free, um, his seizures came back. So we put him back on the diet for another couple of years, tried to wean him off. Again, the seizures came back. So we put him on for one more year. And that time when we weaned him off, his seizures were gone. And now he's 31. He's never had another seizure. He's never taken another anti-epileptic drug. He eats whatever he wants and has been eating whatever he wants since he was six. Um, he's a wonderful guy. He's he's a school teacher. Uh, he works with the uh, Salvation Army in a preschool. Um, and he's been there for uh, almost 10 years. Um, he boxes and plays piano and loves uh, horrible horror, horror movies. <laughs> like... like the worse rating a horror movie gets on Rotten Tomatoes, the more he, he's going to like it. But we can't do anything about that. I don't is think, it, I'm not sure there's a diet for that. <laughs> is he a fan of your movies? 
Well, he is, I think. Good. I think he is. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's a remarkable story. One other question about Charlie. So he's doing great. Yeah. He, he obviously knows what he yeah. went through, but he doesn't, he has no memory of it, I assume. No, he does. He remembers the diet. He doesn't remember seizures, but he remembers being on the ketogenic diet. And he remembers back then, it wasn't nearly as sophisticated. But when Charlie started the diet, there were maybe a dozen people in the world who were on the diet for health purposes in the early 90s. So it wasn't nearly as sophisticated. It's really been developed and simplified and made more tasty um, since since those days. So he remembers like we had to give him supplements back then that like for constipation. And he remembers them not tasting good. But other than that, he doesn't remember the diet at all. I think his brother and sister probably remember it better because they, they uh, you know, we had to, among the mistakes that Nancy and I made with our family is we would feed Charlie separately than the other two kids and his older brother and sister. And that that was not a smart thing to do. We should have incorporated and that that's what people do now is they incorporate the whole family and whatever the person on the diet is eating. So, you know, the family unit can stay together and kind of experience uh, the therapy together. And with not, not that everybody or needs to or should be on a ketogenic diet, but there are, you can make a regular diet look and feel and stuff like a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Keto-ish. Um, I, I also want to applaud you because I don't know too many parents that would take matters into their own hands and do what you and Nancy did. And you said you went to the UCLA library and did all this research. That That's really quite commendable. That's amazing. Well, you know, I think I was very fortunate with the career that, um, I had in the movie business, and I know that we're not going there, but in the in the book that we wrote about making airplane, we talk about something called Mrs. Zabatsky's Law, which was um, the Dave and Jerry's next door neighbor. My partner's next door neighbor uh, saw their the, Dave and Jerry's house roof catch on fire, and she called the fire department and the fire department came and they tried to put ladders up on the Dave and Jerry's house and she said no why, why don't you just squirt your hose at the at the roof and put out the fire and so the firemen did that and the fire went out which led to our thinking Mrs. Zabatsky law which is never assume you can't do someone else's job better than they can. Yeah. And of course the humbling corollary, which is never assume someone else can't do your job better than you can. There. <laughs> yeah. But but part of that was when Charlie was so sick, the upshot of Mrs. Sabatsky's law was, well, wait a minute, they're not making him better. You know, I gotta see if if there's something else. 
It's, I haven't told you, but I, I've started to do health coaching. And, and one of the things, one of the biggest things I tell people is what I did, which was take charge of my health. Take and that, that now that could mean taking the advice of your doctor, um, but it also might mean not taking the advice of your doctor. You all right? Right. Yeah. Just say <laughs> that went down the wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it is amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, 1994. <laughs> you formed the Charlie Foundation, you and your wife right. formed the Charlie Foundation, because I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming you thought, wait a minute, we, we've, you know, we can help others too. Right. I mean, after the kind of euphoria of Charlie getting better, you take a look around and you realize there's a world epilepsy population of around 60 million people. Most of those people start having seizures as children, and only a tiny, tiny fraction ever hear about diet therapy for their epilepsy. So we really figured we should try to do something <clears throat> excuse me, to get the word out there. And I agree that with what you was just saying that, you know, largely, to a great extent, our medical destinies are in our own hands. And at first, that can be intimidating and daunting because those doctors go to school for long times to learn about how to make us better. And certainly in my case, they're smarter than me, but they, they don't know what it's like to hold their kids during a, a seizure, let alone a thousand. And that's true of everything. So, and the, the other thing I'm, I hope I can add just so I don't sound like some guy hiding behind a cactus and with therapy stuff is, is that I myself am a cancer survivor. I had a pretty bad case of leukemia when about 21 years ago, and it was cured by the most Western of me Western medicines, which is three rounds of chemotherapy and then a stem cell transplant from my sister. So 21 years ago, I was uh, a positive male blood. And for the last 21 years, I'm O positive female blood. Mm. So that's about, that's pretty what Actually, people ask me, how that's changed me and i do say i do shop a little bit more than i used to <laughs> but i gotta be careful even going there in this day and age. Yeah. i think you guys wrote about that in your book yeah some of the things you did in comedy 30 40 years ago you can't do today no. <laughs> which, which is really sad but um yes um so the, the charlie foundation um it's been in existence for 30 years yeah Tell me and tell our listeners a bit more about that, how people can find you, where people can find you and all that. Okay, cool. Well, so very early on when we started in 1995, we did our first medical conference about the ketogenic diet and in conjunction with the people from Johns Hopkins. And there were about 100 doctors 
and scientists who were there. So there was some interest in, in one uh, very nice pediatric neurologist took me aside, <coughs> excuse me, and said, you got to understand, we couldn't prescribe diet for your son because we didn't understand the mechanisms. <coughs> we didn't know how it worked, so we couldn't prescribe it. And it, back then, I remember thinking, well, gosh, I don't care why it worked. It worked, and he's better, so who cares? But over the years, I've learned the value of science and the value of that. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> and certainly the upshot of the scientific community taking interest in the ketogenic diet. And <clears throat> I can pause recording here if you want me to. <laughs> yeah, just, I'm sorry. We're back. Okay, sorry. It's all right. So, um, I was talking about how this pediatric neurologist took me aside and said, we couldn't prescribe the diet for your son because we didn't know how it worked. And I think I remember thinking, I don't care why it works. It works. And so why don't you prescribe it for more people? But over the years, as the scientific community has now taken a look into the mechanisms of the ketogenic diet, uh, they have started to realize that it applies to many, it has many more applications than just epilepsy, including traumatic brain injury, certain cancers, as, as you well know, um, psychological disorders, um, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, tra traumatic brain injury. So it has many more applications. And the way they figure that out is really by learning the mechanisms of the diet. So if, if parents brought their newborn child into a hospital today with seizures, would, would Western medicine, would the doctors bring up ketogenic diet now? I think they would, depending on the hospital, um, because th th there have been consensus papers written by many of the top scientists and, and uh, epilepsy doctors in the world that say the ketogenic diet <clears throat> should be strongly considered, that's their verbiage, after the failure of two anti-epileptic medicines, and in the case of uh, certain epilepsy disorders prior to that. Of course, so that's sort of the standard today. Of course, I still think that's too conservative and um, there's really no downside to changing what a kid eats before you start drugging them. So that's always been my, my position. So if you go to Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, or if you go to Johns Hopkins or any number of hospitals, they will recommend the diet earlier. I think still there today there are 250 hospitals worldwide who uh, administer the ketogenic diet. And I think most of those people, and 
the big variable is whether they have a dietitian, a trained keto dietitian in place uh, will recommend the diet. Those people who don't have access to a trained dietitian are much less likely to prescribe diet therapy than those who have access to a, a trained uh, dietitian. It's really <clears throat> different, I think, than many, many medical disorders in that the doctor really, once he makes a diagnosis, she makes a diagnosis and prescribes the diet, kind of hands the patient off to a dietitian. And I don't know if there are other illnesses where that where that really happens. Right, um, right. By the way, I will tell you, I've started to take the degrees of the doctors have literally they're medical doctors. So I, I feel like, okay, they know more about medicine than I do. And they do. Yeah, they do. But they don't know nutrition. They don't know health. They don't know how my body is feeling. They don't know how my body will react to drugs. Um, so years, I, ago, years ago, I was friendly with a woman named Elizabeth Glazer. Oh, sure. Yeah. And she um eventually passed away mm -hmm. but um from pd and started an organization called pediatric aids right. she died of aids because she got a bad drugs transfusion um when she was pregnant with her first child and both elizabeth and her first child after after reaching about the age of 10 passed away and um I have a copy of her address that she gave the UCLA medical class when in, I think, 1993. I think that's when that's from. And she said that she always recommends calling doctors by their first name. Don't mm -hmm. call them doctor this and doctor that, but call them by their first name because that puts everybody on a level playing field. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, Very cool. So I'm going to put the uh, web address for the Charlie Foundation in the in the show notes for this episode. Um, I, I know you said in the book um, when you wrote about this that you made other movies after you and the Zucker brothers um, had a friendly parting in terms of making movies together. But then you said you you sort of got tired. I mean, my words, not your words. You got sort of tired of movie making and this became your your right. focus in 1997 um i made a made for tv movie um starring uh meryl streep meryl streep uh, her older kids went to school my older kids and so we got to know her kind of like through pta stuff she's a wonderful completely believe it or not normal Mm. woman she's couldn't be cooler and so she witnessed what went on with charlie both when he was sick and then when he got better so in 1997 <clears throat> after we'd started uh going public about our experience we started to get letters again this is before there was much email we started to get letters from people from around the United States, who, because the diet had been around so long, um, 
had had a positive experience with it and had their epilepsy cured and gone on and lived normal lives. And one of the letters we got was from a mom who lived outside of Chicago, uh, who lived on a farm, whose kid was really sick in 1975. And she went through extraordinary circumstances to put her, get her kid on the ketogenic diet. And so I tracked her down and we wrote a script about her story and made that into a movie called First Do No Harm. And Meryl, because she had seen what went on with Charlie, agreed to star in the movie. And it's, it's you can find it online, I think on YouTube or something, or you can get a copy through uh, the Charlie Foundation. Um, but that, so we made a movie about that that family story and it and it was like nothing I'd ever been through in my life because my family story and it was the similarities or you, you know they were it was very similar the difference was her family was living paycheck to paycheck and so they went broke um trying to when their kid got sick and we didn't have that experience but um lots of the story was similar so when we were making the movie i i mean i went to the set and i think i cried every day mm. on the set shooting the film because it was so personal and 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 everything and so then when i went back to trying to make regular movies and with fart jokes and whatnot it i just kind of lost it it I was no longer in movie making if if anything at least for me is a passion business. And if you don't have the passion, mm. go through all that, um, then you don't do a very good job. And that's sort of what I found. I tried my my hardest, but I was no longer into it. And I really had this other mission that I feel so strongly about, which is nutrition and diet therapy um, for all of us, not just for kids with difficult to control seizures. The best uh, cure is prevention, as they say, right? And, exactly. and, and, and prevention is largely how our lifestyles. Exactly so. Couldn't agree anymore. Yeah. And we can control that. We can control that. I mean, I, I know you and I probably agree that for people who of poor means, it's hard to find healthy food that's affordable. Um, and we need to do something about that as a society. Um, but for many of us who can't afford it, we still make poor lifestyle choices, um, exactly. yeah. uh, and, and we can, we can do better. Um, so, uh, I'm going to pivot to your book cause I also want to give you a plug for the book, which I read and I loved, you know, being a okay. fan, being a fanboy of, of all the, all the movies you guys did, uh, the book, I just, I probably read it in a day and a half. It was so fun. Um, what made you guys decide to, to write the book? Well, I think <clears throat> primarily <clears throat> we were all just so amazed that, you know, 40 some years later, airplane would still be known to people. And <clears throat> so I, I think our primary reason was we should tell the story in case someday our kids or our grandkids were ever like interested in what went on back then when 
when all that was going on. It's kind of interesting. We were at a, a book signing the other day and my six-year-old granddaughter was there and I kind of got choked up talking about, you know, that our kids and grandkids would want maybe want to know. And the next day she said to her dad, my son, why do people care what grandpa has to say <laughs> at this book signing? But um, so, but I think that's primary. That was at the heart of it all. So there'd be something on record of what went on all those years ago that led to that movie, which seems to continue to be pretty popular. You know, it's like the movies we grew up watching. Um, we weren't alive when they were made, but like the Laurel Hardy movies and right. the Marx Brothers movies. Right. Um, and those are classics. And I think the yeah. movies you guys made are, are is just as much of a, those are classics too. Well, that's great. Thanks. I, I hope so. It's certainly been a, a treat to live through all this. I assume you you well you you said you were at a book signing, so I assume you stay in close contact with the Zucker brothers. With Dave and Jerry, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we've we've remained very good friends all these years, and one of the adhesives is the Green Bay Packers. This year, not being necessarily included, because and we always get together to watch Packer games, and and that's. So and and we live close by, and so uh, yeah, we stayed very good friends. Good, yeah, we were well, we grew up together in Milwaukee all those years ago, <clears throat> and even our our dads were business partners. So we go back a long way. That is a long way. I, I hope you'll appreciate this. I had never been to Wisconsin until last December. I have cousins there in Appleton that I had never met. And so I went to visit them um, and it coincided with the Packers playing on a Monday night against the Rams last year. And I'm a big mm -hmm. Rams fan. So I thought, all right, let's go to Lambeau field on a December, December Ooh. evening. Ooh. And I'm allowed Ooh. to cuss on my own podcast. It was colder than fuck, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but it was so fun. I mean, there was so much history at Lambeau field. Yeah. And, it was amazing, amazing experience. That's so cool. It's, so, it's funny you should say that. I was just reminiscing. This is apropos, nothing other than cussing. But uh, a few years ago, I was in Wisconsin, and um, my nephew wanted to take his, wanted me to take him and his six-year-old or eight-year-old son fishing. And I'd say, look, I'd love to take you fishing. You just got to know when I lose a fish, I'm going to swear. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to swear. <laughs> so he said, okay. So, so we went fishing. I lost fish and I got vulgar and everything. And then shortly after that, he went to a PTA meeting. And um, <clears throat> they were talking about teaching kids not to swear and everything. And he brought up this situation. He said, well, my uncle took me and my kid fishing the other day, and he said he's going to swear when he lost the fish. And everybody at the PTA meeting said, oh, well, when you lose a fish, 
That's that's fair. That's a good one. That's a, fair enough. There, there are good reasons, right? I guess. Uh, well, Jim, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, talking with me. You and your wife, Nancy, are doing Heroes work and have done Heroes work for the last 30 years. I hope anyone listening to this looks up the Charlie Foundation and looks at all the great work you guys have been doing. Thank you. It's, there's a website, charliefoundation.org. Okay. Take okay. Yeah, I'll put that on the show notes, charliefoundation.org. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I thank really, you. really appreciate okay. it. Thank you. And thanks for everything you're doing.